I'm Alia Cruz with CDCR's Office of Public and Employee Communications, also known as OPEC. I'm here today to talk with Brenda Graylish, Executive Officer of the Council on Criminal Justice and Behavioral Health, also known as CCJBH. She's here to discuss CCJBH's 20 years of service or commemorate 20 years of service for CCJBH. Okay, Brenda, tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do for CCJBH. Yeah, um, and happy to be here, and thank you so much for the opportunity. It's really exciting to be able to celebrate our 20th anniversary year. You know, I've been in this field since the 90s, so for you know, over 20 years. And so I've worked in a variety of positions in my life, uh, initially starting my career at the former Department of Mental Health as a researcher. And then in 2009, joined the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, also in research, where I worked in a variety of positions, but ended up as the deputy director of the Office of Research, which is an amazing team here at CDCR. And then in 2013, had an opportunity to uh, join the Department of Healthcare Services as the mental health service services division chief, which was the first division chief for that division when the Department of Mental Health was splitting up to have the community side join the Department of Healthcare Services and the state hospital side became the Department of State Hospital. So I worked in a variety of positions um, at DHCS, including Medi-Cal Behavioral Health Division Chief. I was the assistant deputy director. I served as an acting deputy director for about a year and a half and then was the Medi-Cal Behavioral Health Services division Division chief after we did a reorganization before having this opportunity to leap from being a council member to being the executive officer of CCJBH. And this has just been a passion population for me. Ever since I actually worked at CDCR when I came here in 2009, I came from mental health to corrections in research and really over the years saw that nexus is just being such a key piece and a key reason to really take in and really understanding the needs of this population. And when I was able to go to the Department of Healthcare Services, it's when the Affordable Care Act was being passed or you know being put into place. And it really opened up the doors for services, for Medi-Cal services for this population that prior to that time had very limited access to Medi-Cal services. So um, such an exciting time in my career and then being able to come here and really focus on this population is like a career dream come true for me. And with CCJBH, it was actually formerly called the Council on Mentally Ill Offenders. It was established in 2001 uh, through Penal Code Section 6044A, and it's chaired by the Secretary of the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, and at the time was co-chaired by the Director of the Department of Mental Health. Um, But when the Department of Mental Health uh, split up in 2012-2013, the community mental health side of the Department of Mental Health rolled into the California Department of Health Care Services, and then the, the state hospital side became the Department of State Hospitals. And that's when CCJ, or Comio at the time still, um, had uh, an, two co-chairs at that time. So it became the co-chair of uh, one being the director of the Department of Healthcare Services and the other one being the director of the Department of State Hospitals. Um, And we also have members who are appointed by the legislature who represent a variety of perspectives in the criminal justice and behavioral health system. So we have a superior court judge. We have a retired chief probation officer from San Diego County. We have a school psychologist from are these, is this part of the, the 20 um, council members? Uh, 12 council oh, members. 12 co- yep, council we have members. 12 council members. Okay. Yep. Um, and then we have a consumer and family member representative. We have a district attorney 
and uh, like I said, school psychologist. Uh, we also have a behavioral health director. I think I've got them all. <laughs> so how do you guys choose a council member? Um, so basically the legislature appoints those council members and then the chair being the secretary and then the two co-chairs being uh, the Department of Healthcare Services director and Department of State Hospitals director. And so um, that pretty much comprises our council members and We've actually had a variety of very passionate, committed council members over the years. Um, we ended up changing our name a few years ago from the Council on Mental Ill Offenders to the Council on Criminal Justice and Behavioral Health, recognizing the integration of mental health and substance use disorders to become behavioral health. Um, it was something that was happening as the former Department of Mental Health was reorganizing and rolling into the Department of Healthcare Services, um, really integrating, because at the same time, former alcohol and drug programs was um, was also integrating into the Department of Healthcare Services. And so that goes into my next question, actually, why is it important that we recognize the connection between criminal justice and behavioral health? Yeah. Well, ideally, there is no, no, no connection between criminal justice and behavioral health or a very small connection that's representative of the general population of what crimin criminology would be uh, in the the general population, but unfortunately we have an over-representation of individuals with behavioral health needs, uh, both mental illness and substance use disorders, uh, who are unfortunately involved in the justice system, oftentimes because their conditions go untreated. And so we tend to see uh, over-reliance on our jails and our prison systems to provide those services. And I think there's just amazing investments right now. There's It's a time, in the over 25 years I've been working for the state, I've never seen the investments that I'm seeing today um, in the behavioral health continuum and services for this population to really establish a solid community infrastructure to serve this population. What are a few key investments that you're proud of right now? Yeah, well, things that I'm really excited about is the investment in housing and homelessness. So we've got, I believe, about $12 billion that our administration has invested in addressing homelessness and expanding housing in our state. There's also significant investments in healthcare with the Department of Healthcare Services CalAIM, or California Advancing and Innovating Medi-Cal Initiative, which is something I'm extremely proud of, also because I came from the Department of Healthcare Services and there's a wonderful team there who is bringing this to life to really expand services for those who are most vulnerable and really addressing creating system improvements in areas that have been really long-standing in need of such improvements. So um, that's really going to expand services for the justice-involved population because Department of Healthcare Services has specifically called out the justice-involved population as a population of focus for CalAIM. So I think that with the housing investments um, are going to be absolutely key to building that infrastructure in the community. Awesome. So CCJBH has been around uh, more than 20 years now. 20 years is our, this is our 20th year in existence. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. What is one big thing that you guys have accomplished in the past that has, you know, remained consistent throughout the years? Yeah, I think, you know, we've, what is it? We've done about 163 or 100... Let me, let me get my, my statistics straight. We've got, so we've done 160 recommendations uh, between 2016 and 2020, and about 100 of them, or about 63% about of them, so over half, have been adopted in some way or another in some sort of a policy change or, or system change. The two biggest areas where we focus that we think we've had uh, the most impact is in mental health diversion and uh, really with CalAIM as well, you know, in terms of informing the 
justice-involved proposals. Um, I think with diversion, with mental health diversion, we've been working very closely with the state hospitals, but then also independently beyond the state hospitals diversion program to really expand diversion throughout the state and diversion being diverting people who have behavioral health needs who have come into contact with the criminal justice system, diverting them out of the criminal justice system and into community-based treatment. So a lot of these recommendations are made through your monthly meetings and semi-annual meetings. Could you walk us through what, what a meeting is like? Sure, sure. We um, we have quarterly full council meetings where our entire council meets, as well as uh, we have members of the public who are participating, and, and it's just wonderful having all, the, all those participants and perspectives as part of our meetings. We also have two uh, work groups. We have a diversion and reentry work group, and we have a juvenile justice work group. And the work groups meet bi- bi-monthly, so every other month. And we, you know, discuss uh, usually larger topics at the full council meetings. So, for example, we just featured at our April meeting an uh, innovative new program here in Sacramento County that is kind of deflecting um, folks from even getting booked. So if law enforcement encounters an individual on the street who looks like they're in a behavioral health crisis, they will, instead of taking that person to the jail and booking them into jail, they're able to take them to a crisis receiving program run by WellSpace and funded with the funds with the city and the county in Sacramento to be able to kind of triage them and serve them outside of the jail setting and then put them back or connect them back to community-based services. And so it just avoids the entire justice system other than the interaction with the law enforcement transporting them to that uh, alternative site, which is about a block off the jail. (laughs) So it's very close to the jail. They're just able to take them over there. Yep. And it's such an exciting thing. And we're able to talk about those uh, types of programs at our meetings. So really lifting up great programs, best practices. And then we also uh, talk in our work group meetings about different efforts that are underway and think about recommendations that we can make. We're, re- we're mandated to produce a annual legislative report by December 31st every year. And so we use our full council meetings and also our, in particular, our work group meetings to develop those recommendations that we make to the legislature and the administration on how to improve systems and services for our justice-involved behavioral health population. Awesome. Do you have any examples of how your recommendations have led to positive outcomes, like any stories about a person who was impacted or, you know, anything really? Yeah, I think we're still, um, it's still a little early right now. So with the diversion program, those are still getting off the ground. I think uh, what we've had very positive experiences with counties where we've been providing training and technical assistance to them through our contractor, the Council on State Government's Justice Center, where issues are coming up that counties are struggling with, and we're able to help them address those issues and um, get the clarity that they need to be able to do their jobs and provide those services as optimally as they can in the community. And so while there's still early numbers coming back in diversion, it's, 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 it's too early to tell. Okay. We'll uh, look forward to seeing that progress. Yeah. I think it's going to be great. So what are some of the future goals of CCJVH? Like, where do you guys want to be 
20 years from now. <laughs> well, I don't think we're quite 20 years. I mean, ideally 20 years from now, in my opinion, we wouldn't exist because we'd have that community-based infrastructure. You know, maybe if we were in existence, it would be for providing um, some, some guidance or recommendations for a very small population that's in jails, and, that might be in jails and prisons, not because of their behavioral health needs, but of tr because of true criminal behaviors, but not because of criminal behaviors that are uh, committed as a result of untreated behavioral health conditions. There's a very important distinction there. And <clears throat> so in 20 years from now, ideally, it's a very small population that we might be making recommendations on. But um, right now, we've established for ourselves four goals to be accomplished by 2025. They were established a few years ago. The first goal is reducing the prevalence rates of individuals with behavioral health conditions in jails and prisons. And so uh, we have on our annual legislative report, we publish the, 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 the rates that are of individuals. Right now, we can, you can very easily see there's an over-reliance, for example, in the general population for someone with any kind of mental illness would be about 16%, but in jail, it's about 29%, so it's quite a bit higher. Um, same thing with substance use disorder, in the general population, it's about 8%, but uh, estimates of um, what we have in prison, we don't even have estimates for jail, but for prison, it's about 80%. I've heard anything from 70 to 80%. Um, so clearly another very big over-reliance, wow, yeah. yeah, a high number, um, over-representation of people with mental health and substance use disorders in our jails and prisons. So we want to see those numbers come down to mirror just that of the general population. And so that's a key metric. The second goal we have is making sure that services are available for the this population. So whether it be primary care services, so, so um, health care services, behavioral health care services, housing services, services to address criminogenic needs if they have those um, or are high risk or medium or high risk, that though all the services, the full continuum, social security, everything that they, this population needs, that that full continuum is available and, and functioning optimally to make sure that people who have those needs can get access to, to those services. How are you guys actively working on that one in particular? Well, we also report that in our um, legis legislative report. So we've addressed or we've developed metrics for uh, that we call it goal two, and then that's the service continuum. So we are reporting on that um, uh, annually as well. Uh, the third goal we have is to ensure an adequate and you know a sufficient, so enough capacity and an appropriately trained workforce. We're in the process of operationalizing those measures. So we haven't developed the metrics. So that's what we set as a goal for ourselves this year is to develop metrics for that workforce goal. There's a lot happening in workforce right now, which is super exciting as well. Um, I think with the coronavirus, the pandemic that we've had, the federal dollars that have come into our state as a result of the pandemic, um, I think our uh, state leaders have really looked at those dollars as an opportunity to fix longstanding things that so many of us have worked in these systems, who have worked in these systems for so many years have just seen as pain points, but there wasn't funding to uh, address them. And, and so at this point, you know, with all these funds coming in, we're able to make those important changes. And so uh, workforce is one of those areas that is, is going to be built out now through um, the uh, Healthcare Access and Information Department, formerly called the Office of Statewide Health Planning and Development. 
And then our last goal is just really using data to drive decision making. So many decisions are made on anecdote, maybe one or two stories here and there. And those stories are important, um, but they're only a piece of, of the full picture. And so really having data to, to inform decision making, to drive decision making is absolutely key. And so we at CCJBH are you know walking that walk through our metrics that we've developed through our goals, but we've also have a project called Public Health Meets Public Safety, um, where we've been working again with the Council on State Governments Justice Center. We've developed uh, with them a open data sets or, or, or uh, yeah, open data sets inventory. So it's kind of like a compilation of publicly available data sets that relate to this population that we've compiled and we have available on our website now. So if so somebody is looking for information, um, uh, publicly available information, they can search it on our website. Awesome. So how can regular people get involved with CCJBH? Yeah, there's actually a few different ways. Um, so first off is our meeting, our, our meetings. Um, so we have our full council meetings and those two work group meetings. Those are open to the public, even though we're not required to uh, do the um, the Zoom meetings or you know virtual meetings. Uh, we've had great participation. That's another thing through the pandemic is being able to do that, uh, doing virtual meetings has helped us to reach a wider audience across the state. And so as we've moved back to in-person meetings, because there was an executive order that uh, exempted us through the pandemic that allowed us to be virtual, um, but that executive order ended at the end of um, March 2022. So once we went back to in-person, we didn't want to lose that virtual piece. So um, we're now doing hybrid meetings oh, so awesome. that we can offer both. Um, and it's been really great. Um, and and uh, so we're able to keep that wide audience. So we really want to encourage folks to participate through those to those meetings. They can go to our website at www.ccjbh.ca.gov and find our meetings on our webpage. Uh, we also have a um a listserv, so there's a button on our, our webpage as well where folks can sign up to join the CCJBH listserv. We do a weekly blast every Friday. We try to keep our fingers on the pulse of as much as possible happening in any of the sectors that provide services to the justice-involved population. So that's housing, behavioral health, primary care, and any of the criminal justice work. Um, sometimes even some developmental disability, intellectual disability. If there's any information we can get on that, we, we add that in so that it's a nice one-stop shop weekly email blast that we send out to everybody on webinars, reports, any information that we think would be important. So we encourage folks to sign up for our listserv. Um, our, our meeting information is also included in our weekly blast, and that's another way folks can sign up for our, our um, uh, full council and work group meetings. Awesome. Lots of ways for people to get involved. I like that you're making it really accessible. Yeah, we try. Yeah. Uh, we really encourage our stakeholders, our public stakeholders to participate. Um, you know, it's these are tough jobs. These are tough issues. And the more perspectives that we can have as we work through all of this together, I think the stronger our products will be and the more likely we'll be able to get it right the first time instead of having, and it's okay to try over and over. I, that's part of the process as well. But I, I think, um, you know, if we get more perspectives early on in the planning, the, the better we are coming out of the gate. I'm curious, do you have any, do you ever get input from like formerly incarcerated people? Oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah. Oh. Um, we have uh, some really, um, I mean, just inspirational, really passionate people who have uh, participated in our meetings, really sharing very openly and generously uh, their 
experiences, even some all the way from childhood, um, and and just really a lot of the trauma that they experienced in their younger years, um, and you know how that brought them through their life and 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 to an incarcerated setting, and at, many of them have come out and are working. Um, uh, in positions where they are helping uh, people to either uh, prevent incarceration or help people re-enter and transition back into the community after having been incarcerated. We at CCJBH also have what we call our lived experience project contracts. So we have contracts with regional lived experience contractors who are working to train folks who are have been previously incarcerated to um, become advocates at the local level. It's been a great experience for me personally because as my team at CCGBH, the staff have worked on products together, like work products, we've been able to take it to our, our folks with lived experience and get input from them. Awesome. And I mean, just some of the stuff is just amazing. So one example, we were working with the CDCR Division of Rehabilitative Programs and Division of Adult Parole Operations and the uh, California Correctional Healthcare Services Integrated Substance Use Disorder Treatment Team and CDCR Mental Health Programs to work on what was called our SB 369 veto message report. It was a bill that was going to establish a reentry commission. It was vetoed by the governor, but we were all instructed to uh, I develop a report to identify barriers to reentry and strategies to address them. And, you know, we had identified barriers by system level, program level, and individual level. And really, once we took that report to our lived experience contractors, those individual level barriers really got uh, well documented. I mean, they they were not shy about saying what they experienced when they when they tried to uh, re-enter, and I think it was a better product be because of that. So we were able to publish that, and we got the whole report done within about ten months. And so, um, so it was a, it was a great accomplishment. But again, took all those perspectives, and it's great having folks with lived experience at our meeting. And I learned so much from them. So I mean, it helps me be better at my job because you know it's it's them and it's our communities, their families, the communities in which they re-enter that I keep on my mind as I'm doing my job. I appreciate that you value their perspective and their input because their lived experience definitely yep. can strengthen all of this. Well, thank you so much, Brenda, for talking to me about, you know, your experience and, you know, what CCJBH works so hard to accomplish. And I look forward to seeing what you guys do in the future. Thank you so much. Yeah, we have our 20th anniversary this year. Like I said, you know, we have our council members are extremely dedicated and passionate. Um, I, I can tell you that being able to support them, um, formerly as a colleague of theirs when I was a council member and now in this role, they are just, you know, very passionate about this work very generous with their time in uh, serving on the council. And, you know, we're really excited to do our um, 20th anniversary, just little celebratory events that we're doing. So we're going to put a link on our website for our 20th anniversary. So we hope folks tune in to, uh, or at least join us or take a look at our website so that they can see um, all the different events or little informational pieces that we want to put out this year. Awesome. Okay, sounds good. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to come and talk a little bit about our uh, small but mighty council. <laughs> thank you. I learned a bunch. This is great. Thank you.